This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is about an author who saw herself as a bird that no net could ensnare. Welcome back, dear listeners. Today, we're doing a rebroadcast of Storical's third ever episode about Charlotte Bronte. I recorded this in a hotel room during the 2019 AWP conference, which is a conference for writers and educators, and it was the first episode that I recorded with an actual, real microphone. However, as you will see, I hadn't learned to edit yet, so I apologize in advance for all the mistakes, deep breaths, and lip-smacking that you're about to hear. At the time this episode originally aired, Charlotte Bronte was my most requested historical figure, both for historical and for immortal perfumes. Since this aired, I released a Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester set of perfumes in the Literary Lovers Collection, so I'm proud of that. It's kind of nice to revisit past projects and see that you've made progress. So why Charlotte Bronte today? I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but when I decided to do an Irish History Month special with new people every week, I didn't realize that March 2020 had five Mondays, and research-wise, that was pretty intense. But lucky for me, Charlotte's grandparents were Irish, and there's also a family story that involves the real Heathcliff from her sister Emily's Wuthering Heights, which blew my mind, and I hope you enjoy it too. But most important, the 165th anniversary of Charlotte's death is on March 31st, so it's time to pay homage. All right, without further ado, imagine yourself on the wild, lonely landscape of the Moors, dreaming of worlds fantastic and far away, as we take a look at the life of Charlotte Bronte, creator of one of the first feminist heroines. Chapter 1. Family of Geniuses. We're going to start on a little bit of a tangent. Charlotte's great-great-grandfather, Hugh Brunty, was an Irish cattle driver who made frequent trips between Ireland and England. On one of these voyages, he found a stowaway, a boy with a dark complexion. Brunty ended up adopting this boy, whom he named Welsh due to his complexion. Welsh became dear to Brunty. He even held Welsh in higher esteem than his biological children. He taught Welsh the trade, and when Brunty died many years later, he left everything to Welsh. Brunty's other children felt slighted and ran Welsh out of town. During his exile, Welsh grew rich and prosperous and ended up buying the house near the Brunty estate. He tried to blackmail the Bruntys and said he would only stop if their sister married him. She did, but Welsh's rage was vast, and he watched as the family lost their fortune and fell destitute. Later, Welsh adopted the son of one of his rival brothers. This son, also named Hugh, was horribly abused by Welsh. He was steadfast and resourceful and ended up running away. Hugh was, of course, the grandfather to the Bronte children. And I know our story today is about Charlotte, but I absolutely love that the inspiration for Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights was actually part of the family history. Back to Charlotte's life, however, Hugh was the father of Patrick Bronte. You may notice that before I've been saying Brunty, back in those days, they didn't really spell their name frequently. So there were several different spellings before Patrick Bronte decided on the name that we all know today. 
Patrick was father to the Bronte children. And a slight aside here, I had no idea that the Brontes were Irish. They are so entrenched in Yorkshire identity and are classified as heroines of English literature that it makes me so happy to think about little Charlotte, Emily, and Anne with slightly Irish accents. My family is Irish, so my excitement is not weird. I just get excited about these things. Back to Patrick Bronte, who was born on St. Patrick's Day, no less. He was one of 10 children and a voracious reader. His family was disappointed to find that he wasn't cut out for manual labor, and with such a large family of mouths to feed, they set him up as a schoolmaster as a teenager. A local minister saw his intellectual potential and gave Patrick free reign of his library. Patrick didn't much care for teaching, something he shared in common with his future daughters. So at the age of 25, he left Ireland and his family behind to enter the priesthood. He had the equivalent of a work-study program at St. John's College at Cambridge. After graduation, he was ordained and moved around to different curacies. He was considered eccentric and not always well-liked for his Irish manners and heritage. During this time period, Patrick spent his free time composing poetry and ultimately self-published a volume in 1810 called Winter Evening Thoughts, a miscellaneous poem. The next year, he self-published another volume called Cottage Poems. He said of the craft of writing, from morning till noon and from noon till night, employment was full of real indescribable pleasure, such as he could wish to taste as long as life lasts. In 1812, Patrick met Mariah Branwell, who was visiting a cousin at the local school. Interestingly, after Mariah's parents died and she and her other two unmarried sisters, Elizabeth and Charlotte, they lived on their own at their family's ancestral home, each with a 50 pound a year annuity. When Patrick was pursuing her, Mariah told him, for some years now, I have been perfectly my own mistress. I love that line, and I think it really foreshadows Charlotte's later feelings on relationships. They were married on the 29th of December in 1812. By 1815, they had two daughters named Mariah and Elizabeth. Charlotte followed on April 21st, 1816. After Charlotte came Branwell, Emily, then Anne. Patrick released two more books during this time titled The Maid of Killarney and The Cottage in the Wood or The Art of Becoming Rich and Happy. The Cottage in the Wood, interestingly, was about a good girl who tamed a difficult man. I can only imagine what sort of impression that this left on little Charlotte. Then in April of 1820, Patrick was given an offer he couldn't refuse. The vicar of Bradford appointed him to a perpetual curacy of Haworth, a village on wild land in Yorkshire. The parsonage was a big house, perfect for a large family. And a perpetual curacy basically meant he got to keep his job as minister for life. Excellent job security and no more moving around. The parsonage was just outside of the village next to the church and a graveyard. The surrounding moors were harsh but beautiful, and the entire family had become walkers, as the closest place to shop for books, dresses, or even see a doctor was four miles away. The Bronte matriarch, Mariah, was in poor health upon their move to Haworth, and within, within a few months, she was bedridden. Patrick cared for her for months, and to make matters worse, at one point, all six of their children had scarlet fever. Mariah's sister, Elizabeth Branwell, was called in to care for Mariah and the children and to run the household. Eight months later, Mariah was dead. Charlotte was just five years old 
and the youngest, Anne, was barely two years old. Patrick tried to remarry several times over the years, but as an eccentric, serious clergyman with six children, he wasn't exactly a hot ticket, so he remained a widower for the rest of his life. Elizabeth Branwell lived on with the Brontes for many years, but did not want to be a substitute mother, so she kept her love at a distance from the children. In 1824, Patrick got a reprieve when a new school for the Daughters of Clergy opened, Cowan Bridge. For only 14 pounds a year, he could get room, board, and education for his daughters, Mariah, Elizabeth, and Charlotte. They were sent immediately, and then Emily joined them later. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about their time at this school. Suffice it to say that Lowood School in Jane Eyre told all. In 1825, both Mariah and Elizabeth took ill and were sent home. Both girls died upon returning home, and in a panic, Patrick rushed to retrieve Charlotte and Emily from Lowood. <laughs> Lowood. <laughs> Cowanbridge, excuse me. So this, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. An eccentric, aloof father, a mother who died young, and the experience of watching her elder sisters die while at school were all the foundational memories of Charlotte Bronte's childhood. Chapter 2, Glasstown and Angria. After the trauma of losing two of his six children to a mismanaged school, Patrick decided to take over his children's education. At least he decided to teach Branwell himself alone in his study, and this relegated Charlotte, Emily, and Anne to learning homemaking skills upstairs with their Aunt Branwell. Patrick did allow his children unfettered access to his personal library. Interestingly, Charlotte gravitated toward the works of Lord Byron, which, super scandalous, he was an atheist and wrote about, shall we say, sensual things. But you can really see Byron's influences across her works. Just look at the relationship of Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester. Another bit of scandalous reading material young Charlotte enjoyed belonged to her mother. There was a stack of the ladies' magazine, which sounds like it was a cross between cosmopolitan and harlequin romance novels. How cute must it have been to see little Charlotte Bronte sneaking the ladies' magazine in her room and reading by candlelight? But her father was not pleased, and he burned the magazines, which Charlotte later wrote to her friend that it was a very black day. At the end of each day, Patrick and Aunt Branwell would each retire to their rooms, leaving the children to their own devices. Their main source of entertainment, you guessed it, storytelling. But when I say storytelling, I don't mean they just sit in a circle and write. They created epic fantasy worlds, first based on Branwell's toy soldiers. Some of the world building they did as a group of four, and other stories would have them pairing off with Emily and Anne together and Branwell and Charlotte matched together. Charlotte and Branwell's relationship, while close and loving, was highly competitive. It irked her to a degree that as the male child, he automatically got the better education and was the one encouraged to pursue his dreams of art. All the Bronte siblings were accomplished artists, and some of Charlotte's sketches even survive to this day. But back to their childhood writings, Charlotte and Branwell had an intense interest in making little books and magazines. The magazines that chronicled the lives of their toys were detailed to the point of having advertising, poems, and little histories for each of their characters. They would write these little books in tiny handwriting to keep the adults from reading what they had written. As a group, the fictional country the four created was called Glasstown. Charlotte and Branwell then branched out to their own offshoot called Angria, while Emily and Anne had Gondal. 
Charlotte was kind of obsessed with the Duke of Wellington, and she named her toy soldier in honor of the Duke. He was a recurring character in their stories. But this idyllic play wasn't to last. Patrick grew ill and was bedridden for months. He was terrified of what would happen to his children if he should die. They'd lose the house for one. So he started trying to figure out alternate arrangements for them. When she was 14 years old, Charlotte was sent to the Rowhead School for Girls. This school was the polar opposite of Cowan Bridge and run by three independent women. Unlike Cowan Bridge, this was not a charitable school, and the costs were significantly more. In no uncertain terms, Patrick made it clear to Charlotte that she was to excel at this school so that she could go on to become a governess, which was pretty much the only career that was open to her. I know what you're thinking. This sounds like the first part of Jane Eyre. Well, buckle up, because the similarities only increase. At Rowhead, Charlotte made two lifelong friends, Ellen Nussie and Mary Taylor. Both Mary and Ellen described teenage Charlotte as very tiny and nervous. Charlotte was prone to anxiety and migraines, which I feel that's so hard. I struggle with both, and I can't imagine having to deal with that in the 1800s. No, thank you. This was the first time Charlotte had friends outside of her family, and these girls really brought Charlotte out of her shell. Try saying that five times fast. She jumped to the top of her class and was known for telling the other girls stories at night in their dormitories. Charlotte stayed at the school for 18 months before she was to return home. She kept in touch with both Mary and Ellen for the rest of her life. Once she returned home, Charlotte was expected to teach her sisters all she had learned, taking over for Aunt Branwell. The siblings fell back into their routines, lessons and housework during the day, fantastical worlds of the imagination at night. This went on for three years until it was decided that Branwell was to study art in London and Emily was to attend Rowhead. As fate would have it, a teaching vacancy opened up that summer and it was agreed that Charlotte would teach and her wages would cover the cost of Emily's education. Charlotte was despondent over this arrangement, however. You see, even though she was at heart an obedient, disciplined daughter and she was pragmatic, she knew this was her only viable option, but she had burning desires far greater than Haworth or being a governess could provide. Chapter three, toil and unrequited love. Charlotte wasn't the only one not excited to head back to Rowhead. Emily was reluctant to leave home. At 17, she was one of the oldest girls in the school, but being accustomed to living reclusively, she floundered in an environment of schoolgirls. Emily left after several months, and Anne was sent to take her place, but Charlotte was forced to stay on for three more years. The teaching life did not suit Charlotte. She didn't particularly care for children, and teaching didn't satisfy her creative urges. Charlotte grew increasingly angry, frustrated, and upset with her lot in life as time at the school went by. When Anne took ill, Charlotte petitioned for Anne to be sent home. A doctor was called and he agreed, but the headmistress was also concerned about Charlotte's mental state and had the doctor examine her as well. When a diagnosis of a nervous disorder was made, she was put on indefinite leave and sent home with Anne. Now, I've mentioned a few times that Charlotte had nervous tendencies. The severity of her issue is not completely known, but when she was sent home, her father essentially put her on bed rest. Left in the quiet solitude of Haworth, she recovered. The next few years were a time of change and drifting for all the Bronte children. Branwell hopped between portrait painting, a clerkship, and tutoring, while Charlotte and Anne each had stints as teachers. Emily stayed at Haworth, happier to stay at home keeping house, baking, and cooking than to venture out into the wider world. During this time, Charlotte also received a marriage proposal, kind of out of nowhere, from the brother of her friend, Ellen Nussie. She refused. 
none of the Bronte children felt fulfilled or that they had found purpose and each continued to write privately. Charlotte got to a point where she absolutely despised small children. This feeling, coupled with her despair over leading the life of a governess, fueled a newfound sense of ambition. While she didn't want to be a teacher, the painful truth was that she and her sisters needed some backup plan in which they had steady employment should anything happen to their father. Charlotte believed that if she and her sisters had their own school, they could run it as they saw fit, only accept pupils they wanted, and have a source of income that came with the satisfaction of being their own bosses, instead of merely getting by as a governess, which to her was just a step above indentured servitude. It's a little strange to me that someone who hated teaching this much was so taken with the idea that her future happiness could involve this profession, but what happened next for Charlotte was to shape her novels as well as the rest of her life. In order for her ambition of starting her own school to be realized, Charlotte believed that she and her sisters would need more education to attract families so that they would be willing to send their daughters to them. Remember, they lived in a lonely, desolate, wild country. They needed to have some perks. Anne had gone to be a governess in 1840 for the Robinson family, and remember that little tidbit because a juicy story on that family is coming. Charlotte believed that if she and Emily could get some advanced education, they would be able to start their school, attract the pupils they wanted, and then Anne could come home and all the sisters could live together again. Their aunt Branwell gave Emily and Charlotte 150 pounds to attend a school in Brussels. It was run by a very strict, devout French woman named Madame Zoe Heger and her husband Constantine. And please excuse me, I'm going to butcher the French accent. I'm so, so sorry. While it was rough for the girls to be away from the familiarity of Haworth, Charlotte at least found the school to be supremely intellectually stimulating. The staff included young intellectuals, some of whom were married, not just rough spinsters and Calvinist ministers, as they had dealt with at Cowan Bridge and Rowhead. Constantine, Constantine Heger found the Bronte sisters to be remarkable and endeavored to give them private lessons, since they were both older than the rest of his students and not native French speakers. He pushed them by assigning, or excuse me, he pushed them by assigning advanced readings of French literature and assigning them essays in which he expected nothing short of excellence. This absolutely wrinkled Emily as she found his assignments to stifle creativity. Charlotte, however, had always been the type that was obedient and eager to please. Hager told Charlotte's biographer, Elizabeth Gaskell, that Emily was the greater thinker between the two. But he also felt that her ego and more violent temperament showed a stark contrast to Charlotte's gifts. Charlotte was nervous, especially by the stress of keeping Emily happy and under control. But she was also brilliant and much more open to collaboration with others. It was very sweet, but also a little sad that Charlotte went out of her way to write essays about poems that she knew that he loved. Both girls did well enough in the school that Madame Hager offered them free room and board if they stayed another six months, with Emily teaching music and Charlotte teaching English. Charlotte thrilled at the prospect of staying longer. She found herself increasingly drawn to her teacher Constantine Hager, and with free room and board, they could save money. But shortly after they took up their post, they received word that their aunt Branwell, who had lived with them since the death of their mother and funded their education in Brussels, died. The sisters returned home, but they missed her funeral. Their father, who was getting on in years and had cataracts, would need one of them to stay home to care for him in the house. Emily, of course, who did not care for her students or teaching, jumped at the chance to stay at Haworth. 
Side note, in all my readings, Emily comes across as such a pistol. We'll have to do an episode on her in the future. Charlotte was overjoyed to return to Brussels, where her relationship with her favorite teacher was growing more intimate. Hager asked Charlotte to give private English lessons to him and another friend. He consistently used her work in class as an example of excellence to other students and increasingly began giving her little trinkets, such as a piece of wood from Napoleon's coffin. That's a really long random story there. (laughs) Now, there's nothing to suggest that Hager returned Charlotte's infatuation. The historical record mostly portrays a teacher proud of his star pupil, but it seems so strange that he allowed things to escalate as he did. Madame Hager was suspicious and had other teachers spy on Charlotte, so it's clear that people could tell she had a crush on him. In fact, around this time, Hager canceled his private English lessons and stopped seeking her out and even ignored her a bit. Charlotte began to write to to Emily and Ellen letters of hopelessness and despondency, but then as soon as she felt at her worst, Hager would show up with a small gift or a kind word, which strikes me as extremely manipulative. This game couldn't last forever, and Charlotte gave the Hegers her notice. Madame Heger was relieved. Any inappropriate contact was obviously not good for her marriage, but also the reputation of the school. Constantine was furious, however, and implored Charlotte to stay on. She left over the Christmas holiday. Constantine Heger was later interviewed by Elizabeth Gaskell, Charlotte's friend and biographer, after Charlotte's death. Constantine showed Gaskell a trove of letters, which Charlotte had written him, that he had not responded to. He had ripped the letters, but his wife had found them and stitched them back together. It's unclear if she wanted to save them for insurance or blackmail. Gaskell conceded the nature of the letters, and they weren't made public until 1913. Charlotte wrote to Hegere, All I know is that I cannot, that I will not resign myself to the total loss of my master's friendship. I would rather undergo the greatest bodily pains that have my heart constantly lacerated by searing regrets. If my master withdraws his friendship from me entirely, I shall be absolutely without hope. If he gives me a little friendship, a very little, I shall be content, happy. I would have a motive for living, for working. Monsieur, the poor do not need a great deal to live on. They ask only the crumbs of bread, which fall from the rich man's table. But if they refuse these crumbs, they die of hunger. No more do I need a great deal of affection from those I love. I would not know what to do with a whole and complete friendship. I am not accustomed to it, but you showed a little interest in me in days gone by when I was your pupil in Brussels, and I cling to the preservation of this little interest. I cling to it as I would cling on to life. So there you have it, dear listeners. There is your Edward Rochester and your Paul Emanuel. Chapter 4 Jane Eyre. Charlotte returned home to Haworth in 1844. She was in a sour mood. Teaching was not her dream, and yet even her ideal man, Constantine Heger, had discouraged her from writing professionally, instead imploring her to teach at the school in Brussels. She wrote many letters to Heger the first year she was home, but the majority went unanswered until finally he sent her a note reprimanding her and limiting her letters to twice a year. So up until now, the majority of Charlotte's young adulthood, and that of her siblings for that matter, was marked by disappointment and unhappiness. But that's always how it is. Quiet before the storm, dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it. But in 1845, all four surviving Bronte children were back under one roof, and the air in Haworth grew electric. But first, a scandal. 
In the last chapter, I mentioned that Anne had taken a job as a governess for the Robinson family in 1840. In 1843, Anne secured a tutoring position for Branwell with the family's eldest son. And here's where it gets juicy. In 1845, Anne abruptly resigned her position and went back to Hotworth. She wouldn't fully explain her reasons for quitting to the family, nor to her own for a time. Branwell came home very ill, both lovesick and sick from his downward spiral into alcohol and opium addiction. You see, Branwell had an affair, and I swear to you this is true, with Mrs. Robinson, the mother of his student and 15 years Branwell senior. I just love historical drama. Anyway, so now you've got all the siblings under one roof. Branwell is driving everyone insane with both his addictions and moaning about his lost love. He really had delusions that he and Lydia Robinson would end up together. Then you've got three unhappy, unmarried sisters approaching 30, and none of them are certain of their futures. So what do you do in this situation? Well, if you're a Bronte, you write. By this time, Charlotte still believed that starting their own school was the most pragmatic solution to their problems. But a fire burned within her, and she seriously started to entertain the idea of getting her writing published. Now, the Bronte children had all spent many hours creating their little books and imaginary worlds together, but they didn't really share their own personal writing with each other. So during this time, they were all writing brilliant poetry and working on what would become classics of English literature, all in silence. On one fateful day in 1845, Charlotte happened upon an old notebook of Emily's that was brimming with poetry from her Gondol creations. Charlotte was riveted by her sister's genius and confronted Emily about the poems, encouraging publication. Emily was furious that Charlotte had invaded her privacy and refused. When Anne saw what was going on, she retrieved her own notebook and asked Charlotte her opinion of the work. It's interesting to me how they all look to Charlotte to judge their work. I think that speaks to both her character and their relationship. Excited by the discovery of her sister's hidden genius, Charlotte devised a plan for all three of them to submit their poetry together anonymously for publication. Emily was adamant that their work should be anonymous, and this anonymity would be an issue for them later on. They chose the pseudonyms Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell, a play on their initials. Unable to find a willing publisher, they went with a vanity publisher and paid £31 to have their collection, entitled Poems by Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell, published. Their book sold two copies. Writing was in their blood, though. It was what sustained them at the lonely parsonage of Haworth. And despite this disappointment, they decided to keep trying. Besides, their poems had received both three positive reviews and fan, fan mail asking for their autograph. So clearly those Brontes were doing something right. They kept their publishing quest a secret from their father and from Branwell. In their father's case, they didn't want to deal with discouragement. For Branwell, it's kind of strange. He'd always been expected to be the accomplished artist of the family. It's almost as though they were trying to spare his feelings. By this point, he had completely succumbed to his vices, and while he was still writing his own works, he didn't really finish anything. Now, on her own, Charlotte had been working on a novel called The Professor, which was basically autobiographical about her time in Brussels, and The Professor was clearly meant to be Constantine Hegere. Emily had been working on Wuthering Heights, and Anne had Agnes Grey. They decided to try the, the same format and have their novels published all together. Charlotte was in charge of the endeavor and dutifully sent it out to publishers despite rejection after rejection. By this point, Patrick Bronte had developed severe cataracts and was effectively blind. He relied heavily on his new Irish curate, Arthur Nichols, whose name you should put in your back pocket because we will get to him. 
Because Patrick could handle, uh, excuse me, could hardly carry out his ministry duties, Charlotte found him a surgeon to remove the cataracts. She accompanied her father to this operation, which was basically cutting out his cataracts with barely more than alcohol as pain relief. And then he had to stay two weeks in a dark, quiet room. Here's the part where the muse came down and graced Charlotte's pen. Born of the anger, loss, and disappointment that had up till now dominated her life, she was inspired to tell the story of a plain but fiercely intelligent independent governess named Jane Eyre. Around this time, Emily and Anne's books had been accepted by another vanity publisher and were to be published together in three volumes. It's unclear if the professor was rejected or if Charlotte hadn't sent it along with Weathering Heights and Agnes Gray. Charlotte was getting more and more desperate and sent off a last-ditch effort to the publishers George Smith and William Smith Williams. They declined the professor but saw her potential and asked if she had anything else. Although remember, she was Kerr Bell. No one at this point knew she was a woman. Charlotte sent off Jane Eyre straight away. George Smith read the manuscript and on a Sunday, no less, insisted that his partner, William Smith Williams, read it right away. Williams laughed at his friend's urgency but settled down to read. He was so engrossed that he canceled an outing with his friend and stayed in his room reading, taking his lunch and dinner alone with Jane Eyre. The next day, they accepted Jane Eyre at a sum of 100 pounds. Six weeks later, it was published to great acclaim. Charlotte was now a literary celebrity. Chapter 5, Fame and Tragedy Jane Eyre was an overnight runaway success. In its first year in release, it went through three editions, and Charlotte received several checks for £100 each. For the most part, the reviews raved about the genius of the mysterious Kerr Bell. Though they had been accepted first, Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey came out two months after Jane Eyre. And this was because their sketchy publisher thought that since Jane Eyre was such a hit, he could make some money with two more books by the Bell family. At the time, people didn't know what to make of Wuthering Heights. They found it too violent and brutal. As for Agnes Grey, it kind of got lost between the drama of Wuthering Heights and the fact that Jane Eyre was a similar story, both about governesses. I feel so bad for Anne here, especially since she wrote Agnes Grey first, and I wonder how much influence that had on the production of Jane Eyre. Charlotte, though, was elated by her success and eventually told her father. Patrick Bronte was a bit of a cold man, so the fact that he was so proud and excited for her must have really been a moment for Charlotte to relish. Apparently, after she told him, he announced to Emily and Anne that Charlotte had written a book, one that was better than he expected her to, to which I'm sure all the sisters rolled their eyes. And now I have here for you a nice cup of steaming hot tea that happened during Jane Eyre's run on the bestseller charts. One positive of success for Charlotte was that she would soon get the opportunity to meet many literary luminaries. She held William Thackeray in high esteem. He was the author of Vanity Fair, another classic of English literature. She admired him so much that she dedicated the second edition of Jane Eyre to him with an effusive note praising his talents. Now, unknown to Charlotte, but known to pretty much everyone in London, especially in the literary circles, Thackeray's wife had herself been committed, and many people saw similarities between Jane Eyre and Thackeray, and now wondered if, one, Jane Eyre was actually written by a woman, and two, that she had been Thackeray's mistress. This was deeply embarrassing to Charlotte, but as a 21st century observer, I find the story delicious. So because they had opted for gender ambiguous pseudonyms, no one knew who they were. Part of this was to save face against, amongst neighbors as they worried people would figure out which characters were based on them. 
Some of the literary critics began to suspect that Currabell was one person and that all three novels were written by him. This was a huge problem because part of the contract Charlotte had signed with her publisher stipulated that they would have the first pass at her next work. Her publisher was offended and wanted proof of authorship. Charlotte saw the only way out of this was to go in person with her sisters to claim their work. Emily, of course, would not hear of it, but Anne decided to accompany her. She had begun work on her next novel, The Tenet of Wildfell Hall, and had hopes of making a bigger literary splash. When they arrived at George Smith's, Smith's office, Charlotte simply put one of his letters addressed to Kerr Bell in his hand and introduced herself as Miss Bronte. George Smith, to his credit, did a double take, laughed, and then immediately brought his partner in to meet Anna Charlotte. Amazingly, they didn't seem too nonplussed about the deception and were rather excited to show them around London and take them to parties. Charlotte, after all, was their star author, and they wanted her to fully experience the fame she had earned. They still did not want their identities outed to the public, so Smith introduced them as his cousins, the Browns. He took them to an opera that night, and then the next day to the Royal Academy and the National Gallery before having tea at his partner's home. For Charlotte, this was one of the best weekends of her life. Despite her nerves and her debilitating headaches, she could hold her own in conversation and wasn't a wilting flower. Over the years, she would get to return to London many times. Elephant in the room here, the Bronte sisters at this point were literary stars, yet they opted not to tell Branwell. Whether it was to protect his feelings or he was too far gone is unclear. But by this point, Branwell was so unstable that he was forced to share a bed with his father after accidentally setting fire to his own bed one night. The alcohol, opium, and laudanum Branwell was abusing didn't just aid his spiral. These addictions also masked the symptoms of serious illness. In September of 1848, Branwell died of tuberculosis. Charlotte took to her bed and stayed there for several days, suffering from a breakdown as she had when she returned from Roe Head after her first stint as a teacher. She recovered after about a week and sought solace in her correspondence with George Smith, who increasingly, who was increasingly becoming a friend and source of distraction with his frequent letters and gifts of books. On the day of the funeral, Emily caught what they described as a chill and a persistent cough. Over the next few months, it grew worse and she weakened significantly. All the while, Emily refused to see a doctor. On December 19, 1848, just a few months after Branwell, Emily Bronte died at the age of 30. Charlotte did not break down as she had after the death of her brother. However, anxiety was becoming a huge specter. Anne was exhibiting all the same symptoms, and Charlotte felt herself paralyzed with fear about the thought of losing her last sibling. Anne was a willing patient and submitted to every call from the doctor and every treatment available. In May of 1849, following the advice of a doctor recommended by Charlotte's publisher, they decided to make a trip to the seaside, hoping the fresh air would help Anne. It seems to have been an enjoyable, gorgeous trip, but not even the clarity of the ocean could save Anne. She died on May 28, 1849. In the span of eight months, Charlotte Bronte lost her three remaining siblings. She was now alone at Haworth with no one but her father and their servants. Chapter six, a sliver of happiness. Now that the Brontes have broken your heart, let's turn it into art. Charlotte and Ellen Nussie had been traveling with Anne upon her death. Her father encouraged her to travel and stay away from home longer, and this did her some good in her grief process. The change of scenery and the gorgeous seaside provided a serene setting in which Charlotte exchanged grief-stricken letters with her friend and publisher, William Smith Williams. After a time, though, she had to return home to the lonely parsonage on the moors. The house, which had once been boisterous with so many siblings, was now so silent that the sound of the ticking of the clock was torture for Charlotte. 
she realized that the only way through her loneliness and grief was through occupation. She had started her novel Shirley the year before, but had understandably given up on it as her siblings lay dying. Charlotte was also a writer that could only write when inspired. A daily practice didn't necessarily work for her. But now, with the creeping loneliness surrounding her, work was all she had. Shirley didn't get the rave reviews of Jane Eyre, but it sold quite well, and her publishers were pleased. She found that reviewers had seemingly taken the gloves off and were now more critical of her after her sophomore attempt. The criticism stung, but now, without her siblings, she had more need for diversion and decided to make her way to London much more frequently. George Smith invited her to his home and planned entertainments and soirees with other writers and literary press. She spent a lot of time with George, his sisters and mother, over the next few years. She finally made writer friends, which was necessary as she no longer had her sisters to engage stimulating conversation or bounce ideas. She made friends with Thackeray and Elizabeth Gaskell and kept her correspondence with Ellen, Mary, and her publishers. But time alone in Haworth was isolating. It's not known how much she saw of her father's curate, Arthur Nichols, at this time, but he was a presence she no doubt ran into frequently as he took on more of her father's duties. But something else was tugging at Charlotte. George Smith had always been so kind, even took her on a trip to Scotland with his family with another invitation to go on a cruise the following year. He was generous, kind, and energetic, and was always sympathetic to Charlotte's feelings. She secretly loved him, and while she knew he probably didn't feel the same, she couldn't help but hope since he paid her so much attention. While George's mother liked Charlotte and acted as a confidant and chaperone, she wanted George to marry someone of his station. Because Charlotte was so little and plain, she did not think much of it. But she, and pretty much everyone else in their circle, saw how much attention he was paying her and asked him about it. He was shocked to hear that everyone thought they were getting closer, and as a result, he started to pull away a little. Charlotte began work on Villette, which drew heavily on her two major infatuations, Constantine Hegere and George Smith. When he received the manuscript, George was not happy with his portrayal and wanted her to change it, but she refused, which is good for her. The book went on to be a hit and is considered her most complicated, complex work. He went on to marry and she put him out of her mind as much as she could. All right, we're going to circle back a little ways now. Remember the curate Arthur Nichols? Well, when they had first met, Charlotte and her sisters had thought him a ridiculous man and too conservative and close-minded for their tastes, and they frequently made fun of him. Apparently, he had actually been in love with Charlotte from afar this whole time. It was difficult for him to talk to her as her fame grew, and it seems he just kind of hoped she'd notice him one day. And he was a good man. He wanted to ensure that once her father died, she had a place to live, so it seems like he also saw it as his duty somewhat to marry her. Afraid of losing her forever, he just went for it one day and popped the question to her without going to her father first. Her father didn't have that great of an opinion of him, and he definitely felt that he was beneath Charlotte's stature, especially since she was a famous author at this point. Charlotte was pretty shocked, and after discussing it with her father, decided to refuse him. But this got her more curious about him, and for the next few months, Patrick seethed because he was dependent on Nichols, but he didn't want him around. And Nichols was desperately in love with Charlotte and afraid of losing her. Charlotte, for her part, grew more intrigued by the prospect and in January of 1854 accepted his proposal. They were married in June. Patrick begrudgingly came around. Their time together was one of the happiest periods in Charlotte's life. Charlotte had been plagued by her anxiety and bouts of depression her whole life, so having loving stability and companionship was a pretty great feeling for her. But this happiness was not to last. She became pregnant soon after their marriage and had constant nausea for months. 
She and her unborn child died in March of 1855, originally thought to be tuberculosis like her siblings, but modern scholarship suspects that she died from hypermesis gravidarum, which is extreme morning sickness, and you may have heard of that from the Duchess of Cambridge and her pregnancies. Patrick Bronte went on to live for six more years with Arthur Nichols taking care of him till the end. Arthur himself lived to 90 and fiercely protected Charlotte's legacy. Interestingly, I came across an article from the New York Times in which they owned up to the fact that they did not write Charlotte an obituary when she died, but they did write one for Arthur Nichols, which basically just said he was Charlotte Bronte's husband. As part of a collection of obituaries dedicated to overlooked women in history, they have corrected that, and they recently wrote a tribute to the brilliant author, and I will link to that in the show notes. Chapter 7, Charlotte Bronte Forever. I think the popular image of Charlotte Bronte is something of a stern spinster governess. I personally didn't even know that she had gotten married in the last year of her life. The Bronte's family story is so tragic that we tend to think of them as these tortured geniuses who died young, which for Emily, Anne, and Branwell is especially true. However, Charlotte actually did get to enjoy her success. And if you're a fan of Charlotte Bronte, or any Bronte really, you are in luck because there is a plethora of historical fiction titles for you. But let's start with nonfiction. There are countless Bronte biographies out there, but for the purposes of this show, I try to stick with the ones that are most recently published. Charlotte Bronte, A Fiery Heart by Claire Harmon is not only an excellent biography, but it also features letters that had previously never been published. You'll get information on all the Brontes in this book, so it's definitely a great place to start. Now, in terms of nonfiction podcasts, there were two that I really enjoyed. The first is a two-part series from the podcast Stuff You Missed in History Class, and the episodes are called Growing Up Bronte and From Bronte to Bell and Back Again. This is one of my favorite podcasts, and they have new hosts since these two episodes were made, but it's great. They tend to talk about topics that not a lot of people cover, and the hosts have great rapport and personalities. Anyway, in these Bronte episodes, you get full coverage of the lives of all the Bronte children. The second podcast you need to listen to is a question and answer session on Jane Eyre from BBC World Service. It's just called Charlotte Bronte Jane Eyre, so make sure you go to the episode page at immortalperfumes.com backslash historical for the link. Claire Harmon, who wrote the biography I mentioned earlier, is one of the panelists on this episode, and she and another writer take questions from the audience. The people who are asking questions really put thought and enthusiasm into it, so it was actually surprisingly enjoyable. Okay, onward to film. All right, so if you haven't seen Jane Eyre starring Mia Wyszykowska and Michael Fassbender, girl, I don't even know what you've been doing with your life. That is also addressed to men. And... There are many, many Jane Eyre film adaptations, but this one is my favorite. When it came out in 2011, my friend and I were completely obsessed and had stars in our eyes. It was kind of funny to rewatch now that I'm older because while it's still amazing and gothic and kind of creepy, I think I'm better able to appreciate just how radical and independent Jane is because in this movie, at least, Mr. Rochester is kind of a clingy mess pretty emotionally manipulative as well, and don't get me going on the weird power dynamics. Now, I didn't have time to watch this one, but just so you know, there's another version with Charlotte Gainsbourg, the French singer, as Jane Eyre, and I love Charlotte Gainsbourg, and she looks like she's about 12 years old in this movie, which seems very weird to me, but I'm going to try to catch that one too. If you end up watching it, let me know if you like it. All right, dear listeners, it is time for fiction, and I hope you are ready because Charlotte has inspired some pretty choice titles. We're going to start with The Air Affair. It is the first book in a series of seven books, 
And honestly, I do not know where to begin because there is so much going on in this book. The main character is Thursday Next, and she is a literary detective, which sounds like it would be my dream job. And the novel is set in an alternate 1985 in which the public treats literature like it's the most valuable and precious thing in the world. There's a lot of backstory and world building, but at a certain point, Thursday is able to travel inside the story of Jane Eyre to catch a bad guy, and Mr. Rochester is the one that helps her out. Despite the title, it takes quite a while to get to the Jane Eyre connection, although Mr. Rochester is sprinkled throughout the book. But this story is so fun and original and kind of funny in a dry, sarcastic way. I really, really liked it, and I want to read the rest of the series. Okay, next one that was on my TBR pile forever is called Jane Steele. This book is a retelling of Jane Eyre, but Jane Eyre is a serial killer. The blurb on the book says, Jane Eyre gets a dash of Dexter, which completely sold me. Now, I liked the premise and the writing for that matter, but I have to tell you, I was a little let down for a few reasons. Number one, and this was totally my own fault, but I just kind of assumed it was going to be funny. So when it wasn't, and it actually followed the tone of Jane Eyre, the original, I was a little surprised. And two, I thought it was going to be modern, but it also takes place in the Jane Eyre time frame, and the narrator Jane has read real Jane Eyre and mentions it throughout the book. It was very well written word and sentence wise, but I don't know. I felt like it was pretty uneven. I'd like it for 50 pages, then I would be slogging through. So check it out if the premise sounds intriguing. The last book I read for this was Romancing Miss Bronte. Now from the title, I thought I was going to hate it because it sounds a bit twee, but I actually really enjoyed this one. It sounds like it's going to be 100% about Charlotte's love life, but it actually kind of tells the whole Bronte story from the point when all the adult siblings are back under one roof through Charlotte's publishing success and subsequent marriage. They sprinkle in Arthur Nichols more into this than I did in this episode, and it works pretty well. They don't actually get close or anything till basically the end of the book, so it's really more like getting Charlotte's life from her perspective. That said, the scenes where they are married are a bit weird to my prudish Victorian sensibilities, but maybe that won't bother you. Now, I also bought a book called The Secret Diaries of Charlotte Bronte, and I started reading it, but I just didn't really have the time to finish. It's kind of similar to Romancing Miss Bronte, so I felt it would be redundant to keep going. All right, listeners, that's all I have for you on Charlotte Bronte. I hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy and establishing routines so you're not going too stir-crazy. If you'd like to check out the Jane Eyre or Mr. Rochester sense, there are links to those in the show notes. Also in the show notes, I have a link to a survey for quarantine content. I'll be trying to put out more blog posts and videos, so if you'd like to have a say in any of that, please take the survey. If you are so inclined, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. And I'll see you back next week with the tale of the French artist who made a death mask for Marie Antoinette after she met the guillotine. (laughs) 